podcast, Weathering the Storm, with Melanie Gendre, Stuart Harper, Libby Jones, Kat McGuire, Tim O'Brien, and Mark Perver. The Jobcast, March 2012, Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to The Jobcast. This time I'm joined by Kat and Stuart. Hello. Hello. Now, just one more reminder before we start about the public lectures at the National Astronomy Meeting that's happening in the final week of March here in Manchester. On Monday the 27th, you can see a talk all about cosmology and the origins of the universe, or on Wednesday the 29th, a talk about the Juno mission to Jupiter. And if that's not enough, on the 28th, which is Tuesday, there's going to be a bright club in a nearby pub, which is where some of the people talking at NAM will attempt to tell people about their research and be funny about it. So anyone from Manchester doing Bright Club this time? Uh, Ex-Jodcaster, ex-Manchester PhD student Evan. I remember Evan. I've done a Jodcast with Evan. It's going to be funny. He's funny. He's a funny guy. (laughs) They tie the whole evening together with a compare and music and it's, it's all rather good. So if you can get along to any of those, then please do. Are you guys doing anything for NAM? I'm presenting a poster on my research which is the formation of high-mass stars, which are stars that are greater than 10 times the mass of the sun. I'm also doing a poster, and um, that's going to be on a uh, telescope I'm going to be working with called Quixote. What does Quixote do? Uh, Quixote is uh, it's a, it's a few different telescopes, but the one which is uh, going to be... I'm going to be working with is a foreground experiment. Excellent. Well, I think we're all <laughs> looking forward to that as, as undoubtedly manically busy as it's going to be. In the show this time, we talk to Professor Tom Shanks and Dr. Cristiano Sabiu, and both of those interviews are about the large-scale universe. And Dr. Tim O'Brien answers your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, for this month's Jod Bite, I talk to solar physicist Professor Philippa Browning. So the first thing I'm actually going to ask you about is something a bit more topical, which is the National Astronomy Meeting that's coming up. I know you're involved in organising that, so could you tell us a little bit about your involvement and what's going to be happening? Yes, well, the National Astronomy Meeting is going to be at the end of this month, the um, really the last four days in, in March. And usually the National Astronomy Meeting is a, a UK National Astronomy Meeting. So it's a, a sort of gathering of really all astronomers and also sort of space scientists, um, people working on the solar system and so on in the UK. But this year it's, it's kind of extra special because we've organised it as a joint meeting with the Germans. And it's going to be a really big meeting. Um, altogether, we've got now 930 people coming to Manchester. And that's even just on the UK side, we think it's probably the biggest National Astronomy meeting, the biggest NAM ever, or certainly one of the biggest, because we've got something like about six or 700 UK astronomers. Um, right. And the last couple of years, it's been 500. So it's an so annual event. But it's an annual event, yeah. Occasionally happens in conjunction with another country or countries as well. That's right, yeah. But usually it's, it's just a UK gathering and it has been happening annually. I'm not sure how long for. I think probably for about 15 or 20 years, as far as I remember. It's moved around the country. It has been in various places, but up till now it's never been in Manchester. Um, So I noticed this, um, uh, I suppose, about two years ago now. I I realised it had been in, obviously, various other places, and I thought it was a bit surprising that we'd never had it in Manchester and so I mentioned this to a few colleagues, and they said, that's a good point. Yes, we should have it. Um, why don't you do it? <laughs> um, I, was, I was just going to ask how yes. you got roped into yes. doing 
such an enormous conference. Yeah, so I think the moral is never suggest anything, really. <laughs> um, so, yeah, having thought that it was a good idea to have it in Manchester, it was kind of our turn. I did get sort of roped into doing it. And it has it has been quite a lot of work, I would say, because um, that's a lot of people. And the increase in numbers, you know, sort of took us somewhat unawares and meant we had to make some real last minute arrangements, really. So we right. sort of planned it. We booked the venue and everything and we were planning for between four and six hundred people because that's what we'd been sort of led to expect. And I say, I think if we had not closed registration, we could have got up to a thousand or more easily. (laughs) But we kind of drew a line and we've ended up with 930. But you're able to use the university facilities, I guess, to accommodate everybody. Yeah, we've got the big university place, which is really a a sort of conference centre. It's also used for teaching, which is almost right next door to our own building, the Alan Turing building. There are going to be eight big plenary talks who are from different sort of leading people in different areas of astronomy. Um, obviously, we, we can't cover everything in eight talks, but we're trying to sort of get all the main areas. And those will be for everybody. What seems interesting about this particular meeting as well is that there seems to be quite a lot going on around it for the public. There's been quite a big effort to reach out with science communication at the meeting. Yeah, we've got um, two big public lectures Um both given by people who are, you know, sort of coming to attend the conference anyway. One of them is actually one of our German colleagues. So that's Simon White, who's from Germany, is giving a talk about cosmology um, and sort of origins of the universe. And we've got Fran Baganel from somewhere in the States, California, I think. <laughs> and she is going to talk about the Juno mission to Jupiter and what's inside Jupiter. So that's two big um, public lectures, but we've also got people going out into schools and doing projects with school kids. Groups of school kids are going to make sort of posters on topics in astronomy, just as scientists coming to the conference make posters on their research topics. We've got kids basically to do the same thing, obviously at a somewhat lower level, and they're going to have a chance to sort of present their posters and there'll be prizes and things. We've also got a bright club, Every, every month it's a different thing, but this time it's going to be astronomy mixed up with, um, there's going to be a band and all sorts of entertainment as well as short talks on astronomy in a pub. So that sounds quite exciting. And we're also offering some people the chance to come along to some of our plenary lectures. So there's, yeah, a lot going on, I think. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to that. It should be rather exciting. So just to ask you a bit about your research, as I said, you're, you're a solar physicist and it's a topic that maybe we don't hear enough about sometimes. So could you tell us a little bit about what you research into? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm interested in, in the sun and I suppose, yeah, people might think, well, the sun, yeah, we've been, you know, we've known about it for a long time. We probably <laughs> totally understand how the sun works, but that's actually very far from the case. Um, and there are actually some really major unanswered questions about the sun and there's a lot of research going on and I say an awful lot of things we don't understand. And it seems very important. If you can't understand the sun, which is our nearest star, what, what hope is there to understand anything else? So what I'm particularly interested in is the corona of the sun, which is the atmosphere. That's the bit that you normally only see at a total eclipse. And I'm interested in this really from a theoretical point of view. My own background is in mathematics. So I'm doing sort of theoretical studies, basically mathematical models, to understand how the very hot gas in the corona interacts with the magnetic fields it turns out in the solar corona the magnetic field is is hugely important in in controlling what goes on so the corona is actually the hottest 
part of the sun that's visible. Is that right? It is. Um, it is. Well, it's, it's it's much hotter than the the visible surface. Most most of the light we we see or you know that arrives at the Earth comes from the photosphere. So that's what you'd call the um, surface of the sun, and the temperature there is about six thousand degrees. But as you go up into the atmosphere, you know, away from the centre of the sun, it actually gets hotter, and the temperature in the corona can be one or two million degrees. And that is obviously hugely surprising. You wouldn't expect it to get hotter as, as, as you go away, basically, from the centre of the sun. And so that's one of the sort of unsolved problems that I mentioned and, and one of the things that I worked on. And, well, we don't understand it totally, but we are pretty sure that it's it's something to do with the magnetic field. So basically, we store energy in the magnetic fields in the corona. It's a bit like stretching a rubber band. If you, if you stretch and stretch a rubber band, you, you store energy. And if you suddenly let the rubber band go, it will kind of twang. Um, and that release of energy is, is what we believe um, heats the corona. But I say the details are, are far from fully understood. And there, there's really two competing sort of camps of theories. Some people think it's to do with waves, but the the camp that I'm in is we think it's a process called magnetic reconnection, where the magnetic field lines actually snap and then reconnect again. Rather, again, like if you stretch your elastic band and if you stretch it too far, it will just break and the magnetic field lines can do that. But unlike a rubber band, they actually rejoin again. So we call it magnetic reconnection. Could it be a combination of those two it could processes. well be, yes. Um, I think nature is often more complicated than <laughs> we like to put things into nice little categories and say it's one or the other. But it is very likely that there is some sort of combination of the sort of traditionally two separate approaches. And there's all sorts of ways in which you can have reconnection, which can create waves or waves which can create reconnection or sort of hybrids between the two. So, yeah, I think it's trying to understand the, the real sort of complexity of the solar atmosphere, which is where we're up to now. Right. That's very interesting that we're still learning so much about our own sun. And one of the other things I thought I'd ask you about to finish off with is a topical thing again, um, which was a solar storm that we had recently where the sun became very active and so did various media outlets saying that we were about <laughs> to get hit by a big solar storm. And then the next day they were saying, oh, it's a bit of a damp squib. So... Obviously, it's something that's quite unpredictable. Maybe you could explain why it is that we can't predict the space weather so so well. Well, there's a, a number of um, levels to that. I mean, the first thing, the thing that happens on the sun that, that creates these storms is a solar flare. And that's actually another of the things that I'm uh, researching into is how do flares happen? And in particular, how do flares accelerate lots of charged particles to very high energy? Um, we get very energetic um, charged particles, electrons, protons and so on, created in flares. And again, nobody exactly understands um, quite how that happens. And one idea, again, is the same process of magnetic reconnection, which might heat the solar corona. So the first level in that then is understanding why a flare happens and sort of when a flare is going to happen. We know that it's due to a build-up of stored magnetic energy and they tend to happen when you've got strong magnetic fields in sort of very complex arrangements. And you can see the regions on the sun where that's likely to happen. We call them active regions. And sometimes if an active region is, is building up and building up, you know it's sort of it's something that's likely to have a flare, but you, you can't say exactly when. It's a bit like earthquakes, you know, you know you're going to get earthquakes in some parts of the world, but you don't know there's going to be one tomorrow or next month or any particular time. Mm -hmm. 
But once a flare has happened, um, there is a very often, as, as there was in the recent um, flares, what we call a coronal mass ejection, which is a big cloud of, of plasma hot gas with its magnetic field, which breaks away from the sun and then travels off into space. And so the next thing is then how fast is that cloud of plasma going to travel and what direction is it going to travel in and is it going to hit the Earth? So it may be that you have many coronal mass ejections just sort of whiz off into space, but don't end up anywhere near the Earth. So, you know, they don't have any effect on us. So I think that's the next level of uncertainty. But then if that coronal mass ejection does, as it were, hit the Earth, we have our own magnetic protection, uh, magnetic shield, basically known as the magnetosphere. And so the next thing is how that coronal mass ejection interacts with the Earth's magnetic field. And there how big an effect that will be will depend on things like what's the direction of the magnetic field in the coronal mass ejection and how does that relate to the Earth's magnetic field because funnily enough it's the same process of magnetic reconnection which depends on the relative directions of the magnetic field lines so you've then got that layer so I think in the recent ones the storm perhaps wasn't as big as it might have been because of the the directions of the fields at the point when they interacted they did create a geomagnetic storm but not quite you know quite as big as, as, as it might have been is that something you don't know until it gets here I would think that's probably right well you'd have some measurements of the, of the magnetic field as it passes spacecraft very near the earth so we do have spacecraft sort of sitting in the solar wind as it were just upstream of the earth so they will get give you probably some kind of indication but i think by that time you've you're almost there basically right and, and all these processes you know none of them are fully understood so we don't have the you know the sort of full predictive um capacity because, as I said, at every level of that interaction, there's a lot of complex physics going on, which, you know, we don't yet fully understand. And then there's all the stuff that happens within the Earth's magnetic field, you know, within the magnetosphere, which is a bit outside my expertise. But that's another whole level of, of sort of physics and um, interaction, again, of, of plasma with magnetic field, which people are also working on and is also far from fully understood. So as the solar cycles now on its way up is that right becoming more yes active? We, we i think we think so more? i mean you never know you never know when you've reached solar maximum i suppose until after you've reached it basically right. okay. so it appears that yeah we are still on on the rise to a solar maximum but then there are predictions of when it, there may be a maximum and it will start to turn down again but i don't think anyone can be certain i say you never know that you're on the downturn until really after it's happened and of course there's always a lot of variation from sort of day to day week to week month to month which is harder to, to see the bigger picture so yeah we, we should be still on the rise or certainly still around the solar maximum time so we would expect a lot more solar activity is so it, there should be more flares more geomagnetic storms is it the sort of thing that can affect gps accuracy i'd heard something about that yeah, a, a big storm can completely knock out instruments on satellites, basically. So, yeah, GPS certainly depends on, on satellites. So anything like, you know, mobile phones that depends on, on satellites is, is, is potentially at risk. And of course, now we're, we're much more dependent on, on that sort of thing. Solar maximum comes every 11 years. And if you think of the change in technology since 11 years ago, yes. in terms of how much more we're dependent, say, particularly on, on satellites, then that's really a huge change. Very interesting. OK, well, Philippa Browning, thank you very much for being interviewed. Thank you. Thanks for that, Mark.
And next we have Libby interviewing Professor Tom Shanks about the standard cosmological model. And this one's a rather intriguing interview because he's talking about alternative theories that don't involve dark matter and dark energy. Joining us on the Jogcast today is Professor Tom Shanks from the University of Durham, who has just given a talk on the problems with the standard cosmological model. So, first off, Tom, welcome to the Jogcast and thank you for being interviewed. Hello. And, well, I'd like to jump in there and ask, what is the standard cosmological model, first of all? Standard cosmological model is a big bang model. It has uh, basically it's a universe which is not just composed of the ordinary particles that make up you and me, the protons and the neutrons, but it also has something called cold dark matter, which are particles which uh, I would say haven't quite been discovered yet at places like the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva uh, or in any other laboratory, and that makes maybe. 30% of the uh, universe's density, and the other 70% is something called dark energy, which nobody knows anything about either, so it's a, a good subject for doing research. So, we, from what we actually know, we know for about 4% of the universe is matter, like yeah. us, and what we see in stars, and then the cold dark matter, and then the dark energy. So, why do we think it's comprised of these three constituent parts? Because there are very good observations that suggests that this is a very good model for the universe. The main piece of evidence for the cold dark matter is the way that the cosmic microwave background looks. Now that is the light from the, the very first stage of the universe's history. It's a sort of glow from the Big Bang. Because it comes from such an early stage when things were so unevolved and things were so raw and, and young, that it makes you think that you can tell a lot about the universe and its subsequent history. So we're seeing this light from a time when the universe was a thousand times smaller than it is now, and that makes you think you're getting at the heart of things. And so what we do is we look at how the light in the microwave background clumps on the sky, so you draw maps of it like we draw maps of anything else like on the Earth, but we draw maps of the sky in this big bang light, and by analysing how much the light clusters, we can tell what the constituents of the universe were to cause the clumps, for example, to be the size that we see them. They are something like the size of the full moon on the sky, and that implies, for various reasons, a model where you have these exotic particles, these particles that we haven't discovered in the laboratory yet. They're called cold dark matter particles, so that's one of the prime pieces of evidence for them, the cosmic microwave background. But then for the dark energy, there is a different method. We look at supernova, which are huge exploding stars where a star briefly becomes the luminosity of a galaxy, and so we can pick these things out to great distances in the universe with our telescopes, and these supernovae have a very good property in that they all peak at roughly the same brightness, and that makes them what we call a standard candle. It means if you know how much light is, is coming from a supernova, because you know it's intrinsic luminosity, that means you can work out very easily the distance to that supernova, and then we can plot that distance against its redshift, Redshift tells us how fast the universe is expanding, and what the supernova data tell us is that the universe isn't just expanding at a constant rate, it's actually accelerating. And that is a very strange situation for the universe, very strange state for it to be in. Because what you might expect is that 
the universe is bound by gravity, and you might think that makes will make the universe tend to contract or at least decelerate, but what we find is that the supernova tell us that it's actually accelerating, and in that situation what you're looking for is some anti-gravity type force, which they give the strange name dark energy, and that is a sort of repulsive gravitational force that comes out of nothing, it comes out of the vacuum, and it doesn't have, usually for gravity, attractive gravity, you need masses for the gravity to attract each other, but in this case it's a repulsive force, but it's still covered by the gravitational laws of physics, and it gives the universe an extra push and ultimately makes it expand faster than we were expecting. And so what we're learning about here from how fast the universe is expanding and the fact that it's accelerating is we're learning something about the vacuum and that the vacuum might contain dark energy and that dark energy goes to make up the energy or the mass budget of the universe uh, along with the cold dark matter we just talked about and also the ordinary particles that we know for sure of that. Why do we think the cold dark matter is, well, cold and not warm? That's a complicated question. It's something to do with the speed of the particles. When things are hot, they tend to speed around a lot, and these cold dark matter particles, they don't speed around a lot because they decoupled. They they were out of contact with all the hot material at a very early stage in the universe, and that's why we call them cold, because these days they do not have the sort of velocities that some other particles would have, and so the, the, the particles that would come out of equilibrium with the hot matter later on you could see them moving around faster because of the higher temperature so that's why we divide these exotic particles into cold and hot basically depending on the speed that they move around at and with the cold dark matter model you were describing some of the problems with it can you explain to our listeners what some of these problems may be with this model that's what we said in the talk that i sometimes see the bbc horizon program i sometimes see brian cox on the uh, or on stargazing and what they says is that look, we can make a model of the universe that works, but we don't just need the uh, particles that make up you and me. We need this cold dark matter particles as well, and there are ten times more of those than there are of ordinary material. And then he has to say that, oh, and by the way, at that point, it's still not finished. We then still can't make it work without adding another two or three times worth the mass of dark energy in the universe and then we have this model which works but it's very complicated and that's what I was saying at the talk that you wonder at that point in the horizon program or in stargazing that some 12 year old boy might phone in to the BBC and ask the question that I've just asked isn't this uh, model getting too complicated it it works but it, it has all these extra components that we haven't quite discovered and is that not a bad thing in terms of a scientific model and that's basically the question that I've been trying to ask today is the model has many good points it fits the cosmic microwave background it fits the supernova magnitude redshift relation or luminosity redshift relation but can we really believe in it till we found the cold dark matter particle or understood how the vacuum works with this mysterious vacuum energy that uh, has this strange repulsive gravitational force and where, where does that come from? Could the Large Hadron Collider, for example, be used to find some of these mysterious particles which may be made of the cold dark matter? Yeah, that 
So they always say that the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva, which smashes together particles to make other particles, they always they always talk about that as being a microscope because you're looking at the very small scale. But it's a microscope that may also help us understand the problems of the universe on the very largest scales because part, some of the particles that may produce may be some of these cold dark matter particles. In fact, that was what was expected in the Large Hadron Collider, even by the present time. You may have heard of the Higgs boson that they're looking for as one of the particles that the particle physicists are interested in finding to explain the mass, certain aspects of the mass of the universe. But before they were going to discover that, they expected to find these cold dark matter particles, and to date they have found absolutely nothing. And that's what encourages me out into the open to make talks like the one I've given today in terms of uh, if the particle hasn't been discovered, it may mean that some other model is applying and uh, that there's still room and time to look at, at alternatives, maybe alternative models which might be simpler. And some of the other problems you were explaining was the clusters of uh, galaxies. So what I was doing was talking about rich clusters of galaxies and the reason they're interesting is because that's where the missing mass problem or the dark matter problem actually had its origin because in the 1930s an astronomer called Fritz Zwicky found that from looking at the velocities of the galaxies in these rich clusters that they were moving around at a rate which implied that the cluster had a huge mass to make the galaxies in the cluster move so fast but the amount of stars he could count up in those galaxies were something like a factor of a hundred times less than was needed to account for these fast velocities of the galaxy. And in that circumstance, he coined the phrase missing mass, mass that we couldn't see lit up by stars, or dark matter, which you needed to uh, make the physics equations work in terms of the dynamics of what was happening in these galaxy clusters. And obviously, many people try to match up the expectations from particle physics theories that there might be a cold dark matter particle discovered at the Large Hadron Collider, and it may be that particle that forms the dark matter that also explains the missing mass or, or so-called dark matter problem in the rich galaxy clusters. But what I was trying to say was that that problem, to some extent, had got less in the uh, intervening time between Zwicky discovering the dark matter problem and that from X-ray astronomy and X-ray telescopes, we see that these clusters shine brightly in the X-ray region of the spectrum. And that's what you expect just from ordinary matter that's moving around at high speed in, in just in terms of a hot gas. And that hot gas is actually many, many times, orders of magnitude times more massive than the stars that Zwicky was already originally comparing his missing mass to. And so to some extent, the dark matter problem has gone away, uh, or the, more accurately, we're only looking for a factor of four or five in terms of dark matter now, whereas used to be we're looking for factors of 60 to 600 in that dark matter problem. So then you get to the point of, is it worth, for a factor of five in an astronomical observation, is it worth invoking a complete density of new particles which haven't quite been discovered yet at the LHC. So the current models are actually quite complicated in making up a lot of, well, a lot of ignorance involved in these models. What simpler versions could be put forward to explain the observations? Well, I was trying to say that why don't we take the clue from the rich cluster of galaxies where we find all this hot gas in the cluster and that gets close to explaining 
the missing mass problem of its own, and the amount, and it would be even better for that type of model where you're talking about ordinary gas, hydrogen atoms essentially, making up the missing mass in the rich cluster. It gets even better when you realize that that the amount that it explains goes up the more the expansion rate of the universe goes down. It sounds strange, but everything in cosmology depends on the distance to objects. So knowing the redshift of an object, how fast the object is going away from you is one thing, but you need to know its distance. And the distance-redshift relation has been an incredibly fraught area in terms of astronomical observation. This constant that relates velocity of recession and distance is called Hubble's constant because of course Hubble discovered this in the 1920s. But the value of the proportionality of this distance velocity recession relation, Hubble thought it was 500 and it's now come down to something like 70. So it's a very uncertain number. So whereas we know the velocity of recession and the redshift therefore very accurately from spectroscopy. It's always been the case that we were much more unsure how to translate that velocity into a distance. And to be honest, we to a factory 10, we were a factory 10 off originally. And what I was saying today is if we actually happened to be a factory 20 off originally, i.e. a factor of two different Hubble constants from what we think it is today, then that would allow us to explain all of the missing mass problem in the rich clusters with this ordinary gas material. And then the question is, if you accept that line of argument, can you make this model with just ordinary material and a low Hubble constant? Can you fit the other things that we talked about earlier, which was the cosmic microwave background and the supernova Hubble diagram? And it was the cosmic microwave background that I find most difficult to accommodate in this simpler model. And But I talked about various ways around that problem today, some of which will work and some or none of which may work ultimately, but we have to try <laughs> for the sake of simplicity. Well, this way, if you use some of these alternative methods, will this eliminate dark matter completely? From oh, of course, I would say I hope so. And I think to some extent I know that many would hope more than just me that dark energy gets eliminated because it's a very difficult thing to make an argument that it's in any way simple but the difficulty is getting around the microwave background the information you get from the microwave background this this light at the beginning of the universe is such a very powerful observation so you what you have to say is that either in the telescopes that observe it there was a mistake or there was something that in the path from the, the big bang to the present day, that light had to go all that way from there to our telescope, and that something interfered with it on the way, and that's how you would try to get around this problem. But it's not easy, and uh, that's why the standard model is, is. The standard model has the benefit that it fits these data, like the microwave background and the supernova, very, very well. But it has these remaining issues that make you think it, it can't be the whole truth, at least, or, or, or may even be wrong because of these very deep underlying issues having to depend on particles that have not been laboratory detected, and also the dark energy in the universe, this strange repulsive force, which is unexpected and hasn't got the size that we expect it to be. These are all very difficult problems, uh, and it may be that future young astronomers and particle physicists go on to discover why the dark energy is the way it is and why the cold dark matter is the way it is, or they might find that it's uh, a different model altogether. And of course, I personally hope it's my model. <laughs> 
In that case, thank you, Professor Tom Shanks, for telling us about alternative explanations of the cold, dark matter. Thank you for it's your It's been intro. a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for that, Libby. In the final interview this episode, Melanie talked to Dr. Cristiano Sabiu about studying the large-scale structure of the universe using both observations and theory. Hi, I am at uh, University College London today and I'm talking with Dr. Cristiano Sabiu. Hi. Hello. So you work on cosmology and the large-scale structure yes. somewhere in between modeling and observation. Can you tell me yes. more about this? Well, I say that I, I live somewhere in the middle ground because I, I never look through a telescope and uh, I never you know, write down a theory from basic first principles. So uh, I let the clever people do their stuff at both ends <laughs> of the spectrum and then I try to join them up in the middle. So what exactly do you do? So um, I'm interested in the, the large-scale distribution of galaxies and matter in the universe because, well, the distribution of matter in the universe encodes a lot of information about the, the cosmological physics. What are the, what are the basic um, physical processes going on which, which affect uh, the universe and its evolution? So, uh, so I'm interested to, to um, understand the distribution of matter better because then we can understand more about the physics. And how do you do that? <laughs> so there's a few ways. Um, we can look at just the, the luminous matter in the universe, like the galaxies, the things that emit light. And we, we can do things like um, correlation functions and uh, statistical analysis like that. It's just looking at the, the structure in a, in a mathematical, statistical way. And it makes it easy then to compare with uh, theoretical models. Um, but there is a problem there in that um, what we really want to know is the underlying matter distribution, and we know that that is mainly composed of this uh, elusive dark matter, the stuff that we cannot see. So there, there is a, there is a, there's a gap in our knowledge which we call biasing. It's, it's the difference between the luminous matter and the underlying matter field. And to explain that in a theoretical way would, would involve more deeper understanding of galaxy evolution, and that's something that there's still a lot of work to be done on. So there's another way to do it, and that's a method called weak gravitational lensing. So here we uh, look at the shapes of distant galaxies, and statistically we would hope that they would be just a perfect sphere, that circle, so that uh, if we look at a, a large distribution, we can, we can do some statistics on it. So you have those galaxies that are spherical, and yes. what has the lensing to do? Ah, what does it have yes. to do with it? Um, these distant point sources, as the as the light um, comes from them to to us and through the intervening matter, the shape of it gets distorted, and and the amount of distortion and the shape of the distortion tells us about the the, the statistics of the or the, the statistical distribution of the matter. Uh, in between us and the and the source. So the the matter between us and the source is the lens. Exactly. Okay. Yes. So you, you can imagine if you have two galaxies uh, that are quite close together uh, in the sky and uh, in the same position, they should have the same uh, amount of the, of shape distortion. Uh, and we parameterize this as an ellipse. Usually, that's that's how we do it. So you know, just two components, e one and e two. And so. What do we get from this? We get like a map of 
what's in front of them? Yes. So there's a there's a few things you can do. You can you can then reconstruct this uh, shape information into a three dimensional matter field, and that's something that's that's a lot of work has been done on recently. Um, but another thing you can do is just look at the statistics of the the shape the shapes themselves of the galaxies, and this actually encodes the the statistics of the matter field quite uh, quite perfectly. And and there's a there's an extra bonus here in that. It, it tells you about the, the gravitational field and therefore the, the total matter field rather than just the, the luminous matter. Which so, you so you detect dark matter, basically? Yes. Yeah. And so what do you do with those observations? Like, how does it help to know the distribution of luminous and dark matter? Um, well, we think, <laughs> we think that we know the, uh, the physics of the early universe to some degree. Uh, and therefore we can, if we go way, way back to the cosmic microwave background, we see these fluctuations of temperature, and that's, that's essentially telling you the, the matter field, uh, redshift a thousand or approximately. Uh, but from then, um, the matter field evolves gravitationally, and there's other processes going on. And uh, at late times now, in the, in the, in the late-time universe, uh, we can use these techniques like gravitational lensing and uh, galaxy clustering to fit certain parameters of, of the model. So uh, how much um, dark matter, how much baryonic matter, how much uh, dark energy, um, and, and other things like uh, the, the acceleration parameter. What's that The dark energy and acceleration parameter? What are those? Uh, so, if the, the standard model of cosmology is correct, uh, but redshift two, one of the, the one of the energy components of the universe uh, started to dominate, and it's it's what we call dark energy, and it, it causes a repulsive uh, effect to counterbalance uh, gravity. So, instead of things coming together, we start seeing this expansion again. So, to detect those. Um those changes in the shape of the galaxies, what kind of instrument do you use? Is it something like, is it pictures from Hubble, or do you use other wavelengths? Or Okay, so it's all optical, but um, I'm working on a project called the Dark Energy Survey, and we're going to have this uh, telescope and camera set up in Chile, and we're just going to survey the, the sky photometrically, and we will see the shapes on the, on the CCD, actually pixelised images, and then we'll run some algorithms on it to detect the, the shapes of these things. Uh, and that's actually quite a challenge in itself. Um, even given an ideal case of a, of a fuzzy image on a pixelised uh, CCD, uh, it's not so easy to, to accurately measure the ellipticity or how, how circular this galaxy is. Uh, and it's a challenge we've actually posed to some computer scientists to see if they can help us out. And they've come up with some really ingenious uh, algorithms to do this. And so what what are you expecting to find? What are you hoping to find with those observations? I think if we can constrain if we can constrain the dark energy parameter to, you know, what we think is a few percent as a predictions, then it'd be very important for cosmology to, to know that it's it's exactly these parameters. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Sabiu. Thank you. And uh, bye. <laughs> Thanks for that, Melanie. Now we come to that part of the show where we fit in all those other things that we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. 
My odds and ends today is about space food. Now, I think you guys and many of our listeners will be familiar with the kind of thing that astronauts eat in space. It's not very exciting. It's a lot of foil-packed and dehydrated foods, save weight and save fuel, make it easy to prepare. But, as we are in the age of space tourism, with Virgin Galactic making their test flights this year, um, there's some concern that space tourists of the future might be a little bit more discerning. So to mark the beginning of National Science and Engineering Week, the London Science Museum hosted an exhibition of some more palatable food, and they came up with some really great names for them as well. Uh, one of these was a roast dinner called a pot roast Apollo. <laughs> Is and that, that a pun? On it, the think... Apollo mission and Apollo as in chicken Apollo. Yeah, Apollo. I think so. I think that's what it's trying to be. It's quite <laughs> funny, quite cheesy, but quite funny, the names. <laughs> but that's a bit like a, ro- um, a roast in a flavoured pot noodle, which I think... I think <laughs> why haven't they thought of that? Why has no one done that before? I guess I it's because just... it doesn't go with noodles. I'd like to imagine that you pour gravy onto this dehydrated roast dinner and then it just pops up that into a lovely that's, roast dinner. That's food of the future. That's what you want <laughs> to be like. They also, if you like the sound of that, they had a Mars breakfast bar, which is a dehydrated all-day breakfast. For this, I'm going to have to wait for the um, economy version with no airline food before I can afford it. Yeah, I mean, plain food's bad enough. Space food doesn't sound like it's going to be much better, does it? I don't think I'm discerning enough. No. <laughs> well... You've not heard the rest of the menu yet. <laughs> also on the menu were Martian mallows, Chewbacca gum, and big a big dipper dab, which is freeze-dried raspberries and sherbet. Is there any way you can actually taste this now? Is there a place with this? No, like the Mars 500, is that what they're eating? Well, unfortunately, I didn't get to go to the exhibition, but yeah, I think they had. you were able to sample the, the delights. Oh, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Um, more immediately, NASA is going to launch five rockets in five minutes, sometime between the 14th of March and the 3rd of April, so it may have happened already. Uh, they're not actually rockets that are going to orbit, but they're going to go up high into the atmosphere to a height of about 60 miles, which is an area called the thermosphere. I'm not too well up on my layers of the Earth's atmosphere, but this particular area is above where planes fly, but it's beneath where uh, satellites fly, and by some definitions you could call it the edge of space. Now up here, funnily enough, we don't really know exactly how the winds operate, only that they go at about 300 miles an hour. So these rockets are going up there to try and demonstrate how the turbulent flow of the air actually goes. So the five rockets are going to launch from Virginia on the east coast of the United States. They're going to go up to that height and then they're going to release vapour trails, making sort of cloudy structures when they interact with the atmosphere. And those trails are then going to be filmed to see exactly where they go and those five trails will help to map the wind over quite a large area of the um, of the Mid-Atlantic Ocean. Uh, and the idea is to see, is it what they ca- are calling a 3D turbulent flow, three-dimensional, which is something um, connected with heat in the atmosphere and is quite, um, you could say, unregulated, or is it what they call a 2D flow, which is basically a jet stream? Not the same jet stream that blows warm air across the Atlantic, but a higher-up jet stream. And they're really interested in knowing how atmospheric effects get transported around the planet at these heights, because with winds up to 300 miles an hour, it can happen pretty quickly. So will that tell us about global weather patterns or how storms travel around the world? I think if you're concerned with passing through that area of the atmosphere, then yes. Um, So, for example, the the space planes or whatever (laughs) will have to pass through there. And it's it's just interesting that that area of the atmosphere still isn't all that well understood. It's not 
tremendously well modeled they can't come up with an analytical solution they need to go and actually have a look get some empirical data find out how the air moves there my on then this week is a about the meter which some of you may have seen on saturday the third so this was a really bright uh, meter seen going all the way from aberdeen right down to the south of england so it was about 400 ish reported sightings the description from the people because I didn't see it personally, sadly. And I don't think anyone else here saw it. Sadly, no. no. I think I know someone <laughs> who mentioned that they knew somebody who saw it. That's about it. Oh, wow. <laughs> Third-hand account. Well, if you were to ask that person, they'd have said um, it was a bright orange nucleus, uh, so this central orb, uh, going off the back, uh, was said to be uh, a green, a green trail. Or bright white, depending on what time you saw it. So what would have caused the green trail then? So the uh, the green trail uh, was actually formed uh, as it entered the ionosphere. So as it comes into the ionosphere, if it's uh, big enough, going fast enough, it can uh, generate enough heat to actually excite the ionised oxygen in the ionosphere. And uh, as they de-excite, they release uh, green coloured photons, which we see as the green light in the trail. So that's a spectral signature essentially of oxygen well yeah yeah exactly uh, i mean they they measure uh light curves to to test to see breakup properties and um they also do spectral analysis as they come down i mean i'm not too sure how they do it since you don't get any warning but uh there are quite a lot of sites around the earth which uh focused on just hunting for meteorites but unfortunately this particular meteor um we don't really have a lot of information on because we think it broke up before it hit the ground. I mean, that's not confirmed, so you know, it's not definite. But uh, nobody really knows that much about it yet, or at least I wasn't able to find much on it. So I thought I'd dig up some facts about meters, which you may not know. Uh, so the first one uh, sort of comes from information uh, reported from uh, New South Wales, uh, when there was a similar sort of fireball seen in the sky. And fireball is a technical term, apparently. If it's over, if it's the same brightness as a planet, it's classed as a fireball. So I'm not just paraphrasing. The uh, but the meteor uh, actually, as it was coming down, it was also reported at the same time there was a, a ghostly green ball of lightning spotted coming down a nearby valley, and uh, they think that that happened because there's a connection formed as the meteor enters the Earth's atmosphere that forms an electrical connection between the ionosphere and the ground. And that can form these ball lightning effects. Another odd thing, which you might not have heard about with meteors, is uh, they can actually, as they enter the ionosphere, uh, they can produce very low-frequency electromagnetic waves, which won't have happened for the British one, because I don't think it's bright enough. These low-frequency magnetic waves um, actually produce uh, resonances in objects around people watching. They could hear, they reported strange noises. Um... Like hum, humming, electrical humming noises coming from you know, metal objects nearby. Yeah. yeah so. I wonder if they've ever been confused with with alien encounters then, with the green lights and the humming noises and the groups of lights in the sky. Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, you could definitely see why people would sort of get scared and confuse it for something a little bit more hostile than probably what it is. So, how often do meteors like this happen? Ones this bright? It seems they're actually quite a lot more common than I thought because I didn't, you know, you don't really tend to hear of them in Britain very often. But on a global view, um, 
I'm going to take a rough estimate just from the news reports I saw. The dates seem to be like something around one every two years or so. Hmm. So not pretty rare. So if you did see it, you know, that was uh, good going. But I actually found a, a scientific paper which uh, described a report of a scientist called uh, W.F. Denning uh, in 1922 when uh, there was the last uh, detonating fireball or meteor in Britain. And this is what he says. On February the 7th, at 3.55, when sitting in a position facing north, and the sky being of that beautiful blue colour which it sometimes displays even in our unfavourable climate, I observed a brilliant meteor falling in due north at a considerable angle, roughly 45 degrees, towards the north-northwest point of the horizon. The object fluctuated both in size and luminosity, and its motion appeared irregular, as though impeded by encountering air strata of different densities. In fact, the flight suggested a series of spurts, each one reviving the brilliancy and evolving a stream of bright yellow-red sparks. The nucleus was a pale golden tint, gleaming attractively, and with almost startling vividness in its setting deep azure. Wow, wouldn't it be amazing if all scientific papers were written like that? That is amazing, and yeah. I'm also amazed that this guy's got such a detailed description of something that he just essentially saw when he was sitting in his garden, that by is, the yeah, sounds it, of it. It's clearly a man, he's taken a day off work, he's sat in the sunshine, I thought, I better do some science here. Yeah, gone out at four o'clock. <laughs> Cup of tea. The title of the paper's also called a detonating fireball in the sunshine. Yeah, that itself is pretty poetic. Beautiful, <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Well, however bright that meteor was, I'm sure it wasn't as bright as Dr Tim O'Brien, who's here to answer your astronomical questions. So the first question this month is from Peter, and he wrote in to say, I was thinking, as you do, what would happen when two black holes merged? When it occurred to me that as time slows exponentially as you near the singularity... Will a second black hole singularity ever meet the original one? And for that matter, does anything drawn into a black hole ever reach the singularity? So there's a few things we probably ought to to define, really, to remind ourselves of. First of all, what, what's a black hole? Well, it's just an object whose gravity is so strong that in order to escape from it, you'd actually have to travel faster than the speed of light. The escape velocity is greater than the speed of light. So you can get that by packing enough mass into a small enough volume. So if you took, say, the Earth or something, if you could sort of squash the Earth down to be your marble-sized thing a few centimetres across, then the, the force of gravity at its surface would become huge, so huge that you'd have to travel faster than the speed of light to escape, and so not even light can escape from it, and you will have made uh, a black hole. So it turns out, to answer the, the last part of Peter's question first, does, for matter drawn into a black hole, does it, does it ever reach the singularity? Well, what do we mean by that? What we mean is that if you imagine squashing this earth right down to being smaller than the size of a marble, um, then there's a point as we, as we sort of approach it, if we imagine getting closer and closer to it, there's a sort of surface in space surrounding it. We call it the event horizon that as we pass through that point, that's the point at which the gravity gets so strong that we then can't escape. We'd have needed to travel faster than the speed of light to escape. So once you're inside the event horizon, you're stuck. You're inside the black hole, basically. And everything then does just collapse down. According to our current understanding of physics, at least, everything will collapse right down to this thing we call a singularity. It's a point of infinite density. And you're sort of doomed once you go within that 
within that event horizon. Now, that sort of assumes there is a singularity and there is a point of infinite density. Um, to be honest, I'm not particularly comfortable with anything that's infinite, so so that would seem a bit strange. And it may be that perhaps there's some exotic physics that we don't yet know about, perhaps quantum gravity or something, that would actually prevent the formation of, a, of an actual singularity, a point of infinite density. But we don't know that yet. Now, to return to um, the first part of Peter's question, he said about two black holes merging, and he mentioned time slowing down exponentially as you as you near the singularity. He says actually, well, in fact, what what goes on is that is that time slows down as you approach the event horizon. Now, what we mean by that is we should be careful. Is that if you if you imagine a clock, or even your watch or something, if you fell towards a black hole, then that clock that's sort of carried with an object that passes in through the event horizon into the black hole, that clock just keeps ticking as normal. So from the point of view of the observer carried with the clock into the black hole, uh, time isn't affected. But from the point of view of an external observer sitting away from the black hole, looking at this clock as it moves towards it, the gravitational effect is that you see the clock ticking slower and slower and slower. And actually at the point that it reaches the event horizon, it stops. So so it ticks more and more slowly until eventually it freezes at the event horizon. So that's from the point of view of an external observer. But the actual clock does pass through the event horizon, and if it were two black holes merging, um, you know, one, they could pass within each other's event horizon and they could indeed uh, meet and merge. Okay, um, the next question is from David, and David asks, if other civilizations across the universe, imaginary ones if necessary, at some point had the ability to do a survey of the sky looking at the cosmic microwave background. And he says, oh, you know, if it was at any time in this, let's say a one billion year window of the age of the universe now, I think he means, um, would they see the same pattern of blotches that we see in our pictures of the cosmic microwave background? For example, those taken with the WMAP satellite. In other words, is the CMB, the cosmic microwave background, the same background for all points in the universe. So this is a really good question, quite you know it's quite quite a subtle question. So let's just sort of ex- explain what what's involved here. Um this cosmic microwave background, it's this light that's left over from the big bang, it's the sort of fading glow of the big bang and it's basically stems from a time uh, we think about 380,000 years after the big bang when the universe was still quite dense and still quite hot, probably uh, typically at about uh, 3000 degrees. Kelvin. Uh, and up to that point, the universe was basically opaque. It was so dense that the, the photons couldn't uh, travel freely through the universe. They were absorbed and scattered. And as the universe expands, the density gets is reduced. And so at this point, 380,000 years after the Big Bang, um, effectively the universe becomes transparent and this light's free to travel. Since that time, up to now, we're nearly, uh, we're about 14 billion years after the Big Bang now, the universe has expanded by about a factor of a thousand. So distances between points have, have increased by about a factor of a thousand. And so these photons that were originally sort of in the in the sort of red visible part of the spectrum just about have been stretched out to be now in the microwave radio part of the spectrum. And we can look around us in all directions and see um, photons arriving from, from distant points in space uh, which set off at this time, 380,000 years after the Big Bang, and uh, happened to be arriving at us at the instant we're looking at them now. 
And they, these are in the microwave radio part of the spectrum, and we, and we can map um, effectively their intensities or the temperatures all the way around the sky. And when we make that map, we see this sort of pattern of little blotches. You should say that actually the, the temperature is almost exactly the same everywhere we look of this radiation. So it looks almost identical everywhere. But if you look in great detail, there's tiny fluctuations in the temperature um, around the sky. And it's those fluctuations that map out the variations in density at the time that that light was uh, generated. So around about the time of uh, the, the, when the, this CMB, this cosmic microwave background was, was produced, was emitted. Um, so the question is, if, if we're sort of looking out into space and making this map of the CMB as we do, would it look different if we were at a different place in the universe? Now, in fact, the sort of simple answer to that is that it doesn't, it wouldn't look exactly the same for any point in, for, as viewed from any point in the universe. And the reason is, I guess you sort of have to imagine us sitting at a point, uh, somewhere and imagine that around us there's a, there's a sphere. So we're sitting at the middle of a sphere and the surface of that sphere is this surface from which these cosmic microwave background photons set off. The ones that happen to be coming towards us are arriving now at the, at the center of the sphere. If you can imagine that, all this sort of light from the surface is going off in all directions, but some of it's coming towards us at the middle and it happens to be arriving now when we make that map. What we see in the cosmic microwave background is we see the variations in density on that particular surface in the universe at the time that it's set off. But if you imagine a different point in the universe, not where we are now, but somewhere else, then you'd have a, a different sphere centered on that point. And so that surface, we call it the last scattering surface, that surface is mapping out a different region of space within the universe, the surface that the spherical surface surrounding this other point. So you've got, so you've got if you like, two separate spheres. So we'd expect to see the details of these fluctuations be different. Right? You wouldn't expect the same lumpiness in one part as you would in the other part. Having said that, um, what we do is we measure the details of the properties of this bumpiness, this fluctuation. So we say, for example, how much of it is in very small scale fluctuations, sort of tiny blobs, how much of it is in larger scale fluctuations on the sky, bigger, bigger structures on the sky. We call that the power spectrum. It's the spectrum, uh, the variation in the sizes effectively of the features. Now, if we're right about the way the Big Bang works, our understanding of, of, of cosmology, then we probably expect that the power spectrum, the way in which the fluctuations are distributed between small-scale ones and large-scale ones, is the same, no matter where we observe it from in the universe. That's called homogeneity. The universe is homogeneous. We sort of assume that we're not at a special place in the universe, and the universe is basically, on average, the same everywhere. And so in the terms of a CMB map, cosmic microwave background map, we'd expect to see the same uh, power spectrum from every point, even though the details of the actual fluctuations in, in different directions might be slightly different, the, the actual physical properties in terms of the power spectrum would be the same. So, um, and basically because that's governed by the passage of sound waves actually through the early universe, and we'd expect that same physics to work the same everywhere if the universe is homogeneous. Now, you know, there are caveats to that, and there are some interesting things like something called, sort of rather jokingly called the axis of evil, um, which are basically alignments in the CMB maps. Um, and they're alignments that one wouldn't expect to be, to be feasible, um, because of, uh, uh, the time which it would take for different regions of space to know about other regions of space. 
but they're, they're actually only on the very largest angular scales, so they're the largest features on the sky. And the problem with that sort of thing is that we've only got one sky, and so it's only possible for us to have a very small number of these very large features on, on the sky we see. So the statistics aren't very good. Um, so it may be that those sorts of things are telling us that, that the universe isn't entirely homogeneous, perhaps. Um, and it may be that, that as time goes on, we'll, we'll get more and more information as, as the universe evolves as well, actually, over perhaps hundreds, if not thousands of years, we might actually be able to uh, assess that and work out whether the universe is evolving the way we expect and is the CMB changing in the way we'd expect with time. Okay, a final question for this month is from Andrew, and he's written in to say, in the book, Why Does E Equals MC Squared, your University of Manchester colleagues Brian Cox and Jeff Forshaw wrote that a double pulsar produces gravitational waves that take energy away from their rotational motion and cause them to spiral inward. They also wrote that astronomers at Jodrell Bank and elsewhere were able to measure the rate at which the one known double pulsar spirals inwards to be 7 millimetres a day, which agreed with the prediction of general relativity. Can you explain a bit more about gravitational waves and how this measurement was done? Well, yes. Um, so first of all, let's just again explain a little bit of the the facts behind this here. So a, a pulsar is uh, basically the leftover of a supernova explosion. So when a massive star at the end of its life uh, explodes, it runs out of fuel in the, in the centre of the star. The centre of the star collapses in on itself. The outer parts of the star are blasted off out into space. But the central bit collapses down to become something called a neutron star, a very dense object, maybe only 20 kilometres across, but weighing a little bit more than the sun. And these things have very strong magnetic fields. They produce uh, light of various types, visible light as well, but radio waves mainly is how they were discovered, shooting out from the magnetic poles. And as they spin, typically once a second, but sometimes faster, um, these beams of, of, of light or radio waves coming out of the magnetic poles sweep around the sky and you see a sort of lighthouse effect. So you see the thing flashing, and hence the name pulsar. So really useful things, interesting in terms of the evolution of stars, but very useful in terms of our understanding of, of extreme physics, uh, strong magnetic fields, strong gravity, and so on. Um, so how does this work? He talks about uh, uh, gravitational waves, first of all. So um, so this thing, is this double pulsar is actually two pulsars orbiting one another. Um, and uh, what happens when you've got two things orbiting one another is a prediction of general relativity is that you can actually get uh, effectively ripples in space-time produced by the motion of these two masses. And those ripples can carry energy away from that binary system. So were these two things, if this didn't happen, these two things might just orbit um forever roughly at the same uh, at the same rate if these if they're losing energy via gravitational waves via this so-called gravitational radiation then the orbit can shrink they can sort of spiral in together and eventually merge um, so in uh, 2003-2004 there was a group of astronomers um, led led by the groups here at Jodrell Bank and in Australia and they discovered the first double pulsar which is which is two pulsars in one binary system so first of all, they found the first pulsar using the Parkes Radio Telescope in Australia. Um, and that was a, a looking for pulsars in a survey that was set up by Andrew Lyne here at Jodrell Bank and Dick Manchester at the Australia National Telescope Facility. And there were other, other astronomers as well in Australia, in the USA, in India and in Italy. They found this pulsar uh, called, called uh, 
J zero seven three seven minus three or three nine A, and they found this is quite a fast pulsar. So the the it's spinning uh, with a period of twenty three milliseconds. So spinning very fast. Um, and if you sort of watch the pulses from that pulsar and you time them very accurately when they arrive at Earth, you can actually see that um, the pulsar must be moving towards and away from us periodically. In other words, it's in a binary system because basically the observed pulse period changes as the neutron star actually moves closer to us or farther away from us in the other half of the orbit. And it's because you imagine a pulse setting off and then when the ne- before the next pulse is set off, the pulsar's actually moved a little bit closer and so you can sort of compress the pulse period on one side and you can expand it on the other side. So this sort of, it's like a sort of Doppler shift effect on the, on the pulses as the, as the pulsar orbits. So you actually see that it's in a binary orbit. Uh, and actually it was in an orbit that lasted 2.4 hours. Uh, and you can actually look at the details of that orbit by looking at the observations of that pulsar. And, and it was soon discovered um, that this was a slightly eccentric orbit. So it wasn't a perfectly circular orbit. It was slightly elliptical. Um, and it turns out that the sort of orientation of that ellipse was gradually rotating. Uh, and this is called relativistic precession. And it's something that's been seen for the planet Mercury as well, going around the sun. And it's a prediction of, of Einstein's theory of gravity, general relativity. So this was found to be happening in this pulsar. It was actually rotating at 17 degrees per year. That's 100,000 times more than the speed at which uh, Mercury's orbit processes. So it's extremely relativistic, uh, which is very useful because it means that it's a very good test of, of, of general relativity. Um, so that actually uh, allowed us to start to, you can measure the rate at which it processes. That gives you information about the masses of the, of the two objects. And, and it turned out that the second unseen object was a similar sort of mass just over the mass of the sun. Um, probably a neutron star because, um, it had to be very small because you could, you can sort of measure the time at which the, the orbit takes. You can therefore work out how big the orbit is and it would basically fit inside the sun. So you couldn't have a very big star as the companion. So it's probably another neutron star. And we already knew of several other, uh, binary systems which comprised one pulsar and one neutron star. The second neutron star not itself being a pulsar. But this one was actually the shortest period um, pulsar neutron star binary yet discovered. So that was interesting. Um, but it turned out that uh, we you know, wanted to have a look to see whether actually this second star might itself be, be a pulsar. Um, and sure enough, uh, it turned out it was. Um, it was a bit hard to spot initially because it turned out that... Uh, it's only it was only detectable for part of the orbit, and in fact, it was eclipsing. So you happen you had to be looking when it was actually producing the pulses. And this was a much longer spin pulsar. It had a period of two point eight seconds. So it turns out you've now got this incredibly brilliant test of general relativity because you've got these two very accurate clocks, these two very heavy objects spinning. So they're like really good flywheels, um, very high moment inertia. So these things are spinning, um, one with a, one very fast, one rather more slowly, a few seconds. Um, and they're actually orbiting one another with a velocity that's about 10% that of the speed of light in a very strong gravitational field. And that makes it a great test of general relativity. So given that you can now measure the orbital period by looking at these shifts in the pulse periods, you can actually, over the period of time then, you can measure it. Initially, it was about, we can measure it as 2.4 hours. But because the precision you can get with pulsar timing is so huge, we're actually able to show 
that that orbital period of 2.4 hours is getting smaller by about one one hundredth of a millionth of a second each day, 10 to the minus 8 seconds every day. Um, so very gradually. And when you compare that, so that means it's it's basically um, getting a shorter and shorter period. So it's so it's taking less time to go round. That means the orbit is shrinking, and so we've actually got an orbit that's about a million kilometers across the separation, and that shrinking corresponds to about seven millimeters per day in this orbit of maybe a million kilometers across. So that's where that where that comes from. But also the other turns out the most critical test of general, the best test really of general relativity that you can get out of this. Um, double pulsar and there's a number of them is something called the Shapiro delay and that's basically caused when if you imagine the sort of more distant pulsar being almost directly behind the nearer pulsar you can measure the arrival time of the pulses as they travel past the nearer pulsar and it turns out um, uh, they take longer because of the curvature of space-time around the nearer pulsar and so obviously general relativity predicts what that effect should be. You can measure that effect in the in the double pulsar, this so-called Shapiro delay in the arrival times of the pulses. And take the ratio of the two, what does Einstein predict in general relativity? What does should what does the dual pulsar show? And the ratio turns out to be basically one, in other words, the same answer, plus or minus point zero 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 five. So in other words, you're within point zero five percent of the so-called correct value, the Einstein uh, prediction, if you like. Uh, and that 0.05% is basically just the error bar on the observations. It's the uncertainty in our measurements. So we can actually be able to show with those observations that Einstein's general relativity is at least 99.95% correct. Um, so this is a this is really the double pulse has a truly phenomenal system. We've done a number of interviews on the Jodcast before about it, and... Uh, I'll link to those in the online notes. Okay, that's it for this month. Uh, if you do have any questions, then send them in the usual way uh, via the webpage at www.jodcast.net. Thanks for that, Tim. And now it's on to the feedback. We've actually had three postcards since the last episode, which is rather exciting, and they're from far-flung corners of the globe. Uh, the first one is anonymous from Albeville in the French Alps, so it could have been someone on holiday maybe, saying, loving the Jogcast whilst here in France, the technical content is excellent. And they've sent us a postcard with two goats on the front, alpine mountain goats, which are called Bouquetin. Spectacular pronunciation. Thank you. Very impressive. I have to say, at first I thought this postcard was from a place called Le Bouquetin, which means the goat, but actually that's the subject of the picture. And it's from (laughs) Albeville. Oh, and they signed off with Vive la Jod. We also had a postcard from Chase Aita, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, um, from the Tanagashima Space Centre in Japan, um, with what looks like a big rocket on the front of it. He says thanks for a wonderful Jodcast every time, and he really enjoys it in Japan. Um, I don't know whether he's referring to the Jodcast or Japan, but I'm glad you're enjoying yourself. Um, and the last piece of uh, post we got was from uh, Jeff, and that comes from the Falklands, and it's got a nice big penguin on the front of it. So, very nice. And he says that the Jodcast kept him sane for his 16-hour flight. And he also says that the southern cliffs in Stanley are breathtaking. That is a brilliantly remote part of the world to get a postcard from. Thank you very much. On the email, um, Paul Forsdick noticed that our Night Sky RSS page contains a lot of bizarre symbols. 
um, and they're actually things that are supposed to be interpreted as things like the degrees symbol by your web browser. Uh, but the RSS feed doesn't seem to do that. Um, so thanks for pointing that out. If you've been looking at the RSS feed of the night sky and you've seen things like Jupiter is 45 ampersand hash 176 semicolon above the southwestern horizon, then that should have been 45 degrees above the southwestern horizon. And we apologise that we are going to try and get that fixed. And then on Twitter, um, Richard Wanless uh, tweeted a supernova mosaic which is a big mosaic of um, different supernova pictures, which is quite impressive, nice to look at. Thank you very much. And we also want to thank the West Didsbury Astronomical Society right here in Manchester for retweeting us. And as one last thing, Susan Kelly, one of our listeners, aka Susan Tang, has done a podcast for kids. It's actually at www.astronomyforkids.com.au and she's done that aided and abetted by her family, Kong and Jeffrey, her young son, who actually presents the programme. And I'm a tiny bit worried for my job because Jeffrey is a really good presenter. So if you want to listen to an astronomy podcast for children, it's on iTunes as well, and there'll be a link on the website. So if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And of course you can always send us posts. The address is on the website. So that brings us to the end of the show. And it only remains to say thank you very much to Tom Shanks and Cristiano Sabio for the interviews. And to Philippa Browning for the job bite. The editors were Dan Thornton, George Bender, Stuart Harper and Kat McGuire. And the producer was Mark Perver. So until next time, John. John.